Good morning, sleep in service. Good to see you guys. Glad that you're here. If you've got a Bible, Revelation chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. We've got a lot to cover, so uh, we're going to dive right in. I hear God when I run. So even when we're on vacation, I love to take a little section of the morning and go for a run. Over the last couple of weeks, I had an opportunity to run a beautiful three-mile stretch on an island in the other side of the country kind of a deal. And it was absolutely beautiful, stunning. One morning, I was out running, and I passed a group of people people uh, that were doing something you don't normally see on a beach. It was a, a group of ladies all about my mom's age. I'm not going to call them old. That would be offensive, okay, but about my mom's age. And they're holding up signs that say things like, congratulate Wendy. Come and say hi to, or come and high five Wendy. Wendy is a lot. And so I'm a curious guy. So even though I'm sweating profusely because it was really warm, I got in line to high five Wendy. And I met Wendy. Wendy is sitting on a chair on the beach and people are walking up and like high-fiving her and hugging her. And I'm thinking to myself, why are we high-fiving Wendy? Like, <laughs> what's kind of the deal that's going on here? There was a story there and I talked to one of her friends Wendy had been battling cancer, but now she had been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. She'd been given six to eight weeks to live. And Wendy had gathered this group of friends from Tampa, Florida, and they'd all come down to this little island to plan her funeral. They came there to plan her funeral, but the night before, the phone had rung. Her doctor back in Tampa had hunted her down on her vacation, and the phone conversation started with these words. I read the test wrong. You're not dying. Actually, you're cancer-free. You're going to live. So what do you do when you think you're dying, and then it turns out you're not dying? Apparently, you throw a beach party with strangers, and sweaty pastors from the Pacific Northwest have an opportunity to walk up and go, that is absolutely awesome. And I want to promise you something. We are going to end up at a party celebrating life by the time we're done this morning, but we got to go through the dead and dying part first, okay? Stick with me. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus has strong words for a church that appears to be alive, but was in fact dead. Revelation 3 verse 1, Pastor Todd read it. Let me refresh your memory. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Don't be afraid of that imagery. That's an image, a picture of the Holy Spirit. So God is holding the Holy Spirit, a part of himself, in his own hand. And the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Let me read that again. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Let me put that another way. You have an appearance of life, but it's a veneer. It's a facade. It's a front. Your reality is behind the front, behind all of the flash, you're spiritually dead. There's no life there. He's saying to this church, your church is all about its program. It's all about the person up front. It's not about Jesus. And we've all seen or experienced that at some level. I hope and pray that what God has to say to the church in Sardis is not something he could say about us. I hope and pray that we're not just a church of flash, but that behind the scenes, there's a church of substance that loves Jesus and pursues Jesus. Let me describe to you a spiritually dead church, okay? A spiritually dead church worships the good old days. 
The stories are all about the good old days when God used to move in our midst. The energy always goes back to reliving past victories. And the new ideas tend not to be new. They just tend to be recirculated or rebranded old ones. A spiritually dead church looks backwards because there's nothing compelling about their present and most certainly nothing compelling about their future. A living church lives in its present, but actually has the audacity to believe that there are even better days ahead because God is still in control and still on the throne. Secondly, a spiritually dead church refuses to change. Now let's face it, change is tough, but there's a word for any living organism that will not change, and that word unfortunately is dead, okay? Anything that's alive that won't change is absolutely dead. Now, before you start reading into what I'm saying, let me make this absolutely crystal clear. With as much love as I can muster, I am not talking about changing God's word, God's standard, God's character, or what God says is good. On those four things, we will not change. We have attached ourselves to the holy word of God, and it doesn't matter what any group of people on the face of this earth rule or decree, we believe in God and his word, and the only person we're trying to impress is Jesus himself. Can I get an amen from the 1115 service, okay? And I hope that came across as loving because it was meant to be. We're talking here about when it comes to introducing new people to Jesus, we should be hearing the words new, improved, and improving because all of these doors God is opening new opportunities to share the gospel. So if you find yourself saying, I just wish they would use my style of music or I just wish Grant would preach the way that I want him to preach or I just wish they would do things the way I would like them to do, you're stuck. And the step before being dead is stuck, okay? Let's keep going. A spiritually dead church won't change. Thirdly, a spiritually dead church is complacent in its leadership. So a spiritually dead church is in spiritual cruise control. So if you ever hear me say, you know what we're going to do for the next year? We're going to preach, pray, and plug away. Then, like, <laughs> I hear that, I'm like, are you serious? Who in the world would want to be involved in something like that? Absolutely not. It's not just simply about, uh, uh, about putting this whole thing in cruise control and hoping everything works out. I mean, if you ever hear us say the words, but we've always done it that way, you should leave. You should walk away because that, that, when you hear that, we've always done it that way. It's time to get out the defibrillator because the flat line is coming very, very quickly. Fourthly, a spiritually dead church disregards the next generation. The next generation is not the church of tomorrow. They're the church of today. The children in this church are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. A dead church has no room for young leaders with young passion and young energy. So I'm going to make a pledge to you. We will always make room at Christ the King Church for young leaders to get it right and to get it wrong. I know none of you ever made a mistake You've never said something that you wish you could take back. You've never, you've never stepped over a line that you wish you could retreat from. We are always going to make opportunities for young leaders to flourish because I don't know about you, but I'd really love to have somebody to take the torch when we're ready to pass it. That's what we're hoping for, right? All those years ago, why did Bob Dunlop give a 14-year-old kid with a really big mouth 
an opportunity to preach on a Sunday night at Faith Fellowship Baptist Church in Brandon, Manitoba. Why? I mean, should he have done that? Probably not. But he did. Why? Because he wanted to give somebody an opportunity to lead in a place that necessarily they didn't deserve to be. But it was just like, let's give the kid a shot and see whether or not God actually does something with it. We want those opportunities to be here. A living church makes room for young leaders to actually lead. And then finally, a, a dead church ignores the urgent call to share Jesus. I mean, there's an urgency to the message of Jesus. Because in this particular passage, for the first time in Revelation, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. Now, it may not seem soon enough for some of us, but it says he's coming soon. A dead church doesn't care about people who don't know Jesus because their salvation is like a, is like a, a spiritual life insurance policy. And as long as they're in and they get to go to heaven, honestly, if they were to be really honest, they would say they didn't care about anybody else and the rest of the world can just go to hell. A spiritually dead church is dying. And that was the church in Sardis. And God speaks to them, flash on the outside, dead on the inside. And this is what he says to them. This is God's plea to a dead church. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. I mean, God says to this dead institution, wake up, stand up, flex that atrophied muscle before the rigor mortis sets in physically and spiritually. I actually need you to move. Remember back to that moment when you were filled with passion and filled with joy. Repent and realize God is coming back soon and we're going to answer for whether or not we were alive or dead. And I want to remind you, Jesus is coming back for a living bride, not a dead corpse. So we're called to be alive. Now, according to the next verse, they weren't all dead. Isn't that the way it always works? You know, you got this church and then there's just this little fragment of human beings who are on fire and they just won't quit. They're in it. And they actually believe that God can do something through them. Verse 4, yet you have a few people in Sardis who've not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. If you read your Bible, it begins with the wedding in Genesis chapter 3, and it ends with the wedding in the end of the book of Revelation. And every time I read it, I'm struck by this thought. The bride wears white, not because she deserves to, not because she's earned it, not because she's flawless, but because she has a bridegroom who has the ability to wash her as white as snow. This is such good news to anyone in the room like me who has a soiled past or a dirty history. This is such good news because God says, though your sin be as scarlet, I can wash you as white as snow. I can turn the wreck of your past and make it as, as pristine as a Manitoba snowstorm. I can do that inside of you. And when that happens, when you invite me to wash you as white as snow, a miracle happens. I write down your name. Now some of you go, whoa, I don't understand that. Listen to the next verse. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, 
but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's an important truth. Maybe the most important truth for this morning. God has a book. You may want to write that down. God has a book. It's known in the Bible as the book of remembrance. Some of your translations will call it the book of life. Other translations will call it the Lamb's book of life. And according to Revelation chapter 20, which we're going to get to towards the end of August, okay, the books, plural, will be opened and the dead will be judged by what is written in those books at a time that is known as the great white throne judgment. It's a scary part, and we're going to walk through it together. And then the Bible says that a book, singular, will be opened, and whoever's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will be separated from God forever. So that leads to an unbelievably important question this morning. Is your name in the book? Is your name in the book? I received Jesus at the age of eight years old behind Linden Lanes Elementary School in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada. With the faith of a child and a completely clueless brain, I gave my heart to God. I asked Him to forgive my sin, and I pledged to live my life for Him for the rest of my life. At times, I've been okay at keeping that promise. At other times, if I was honest, I've not done very well at all, and I'm so thankful that God is patient. But in that moment, as a kid, when I gave my heart to Jesus, I was spiritually saved from death. Didn't know it at the time. I didn't know I was spiritually dead. I thought I was doing just fine, right? I'm an eight-year-old kid. It's summertime, right? Life is popsicles and paddling pools. Everything is good, right? But then I began to discover as time went along that I was spiritually dead. In that moment, I was saved from spiritual death, adopted into God's family, resuscitated with God's life. And in a way that I did not understand, Jesus wrote my name down. Is your name in the book? Can you look back to a moment when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, when you came to him in faith, received Jesus, repented of sin, and then chose to follow him for the rest of your life? If you can say, yes, I remember that moment, then your name's written down. But I'm going to ask it again. Do you know for sure that your name is written in that book? It matters. It matters. And nobody here needs to go home today going, I don't know. By a simple act of faith and repentance, if you believe with your mind and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In that moment, down goes your name. All right, let's flip the coin for a second. To another church, the Church of Philadelphia, okay? Not the home of the Phillies, not the 76ers or the Eagles, not the home of the Liberty Bell or cheese steak sandwiches, okay? Different Philadelphia in Asia Minor. Our modern-day Philadelphia stole their name from these guys, and it does mean brotherly love, okay? But here are the encouraging words to a church that contrasted to the church in Sardis. These guys are not dead. They are alive, and they are following God and living in word, truth, and action. The Bible says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who's holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut, 
I know that you have little strength, underline that phrase, we're going to come back to it. Yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, that's a scary term, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. Since I've kept my command, or since you have kept my command to endure patiently, underline this verse as well. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. So we're going to contrast a dead church to a spiritually vibrant church. I pray that this would describe us. I pray that it would. Okay? A spiritually vibrant church walks through the door of opportunity. So did you notice what he said when he opens, what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. I've placed an open door before you that no one can shut. So when Jesus gives you an opportunity to share his message, when he opens that door, the devil is incapable of closing it, even though he wants you to think he has both the power and the authority to do that. Okay? There's a reason why he's called the king of liars. It's because he doesn't tell you the truth. He will say to you, this will fulfill you, but it's not true. Anybody else learned that from experience? The devil says, no, this is good for you. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go do that. And you find out that is not good for me. When God opens a door, the devil can't shut it. Okay? When God closes a door of protection, the devil's incapable of opening it. So Jesus decides, according to this verse, what doors in your life are opened or closed. Here's the question. Do you trust his discretion as to which doors are opened and closed? Okay? I don't know about you, but sometimes God closes a door, and my reaction, I'm going to go get a pry bar. I'm going to pop that thing back open again because that door actually appears to be positive to me. So let's ask some questions. When God opens the door for you to care and share uh, the message of Jesus with your neighbor, do you stand outside of that door and pray that somebody else comes along and tells them about Jesus? Or do you walk through the door of opportunity and actually open your mouth and share? Okay, not in a weird way, but I mean, I'm amazed at the number of people. They're in their neighborhood where God put them and their prayers. Oh, Jesus, please send someone to tell my neighbors about Jesus. Be the answer to your own prayer, right? You put a big check mark past this one. God sent someone. I'm it. I will be the one to actually go and have that conversation. So when God opens a door, do you walk through or do you stand outside and pray that somebody else comes along and walks through that door? When God closes the door on a relationship, do you trust him and move on? Or do you find a pry bar and try to open the door on your own because you just can't do life without that particular person. When God gave opportunity to this church, the church moved with the Spirit and the opportunity, and God began to change lives. This church could have been unbelievably discouraged with their situation. Maybe today, you've been watching the news for the last couple of weeks, maybe you are unbelievably discouraged about your situation. You know what I love about this church? They said, well, here we are, we should probably stay faithful and do what God has told us to do. So this group of 
people was under Roman oppression. But they're sitting at home going, you know what? The Romans have done a few things that are actually kind of cool. They built roads. We should probably walk and travel on those roads and talk about Jesus. This group of people said the Romans instituted a law that the Greek language was going to be everybody's language. They looked at that and said, we all know how to talk Greek. So now we got a road system and an opportunity and a common language. The time is absolutely perfect for us to take the message of Jesus to every corner of the earth. Let's not get all freaked out and discouraged. The last time I checked, because I went to the end of the book, Jesus is still on the throne, people. Let's focus on that. We have amazing opportunities right in front of us. Let's keep going. A spiritually vibrant church finds strength in the name and the word of God. The Bible says, they have placed before you an open door. Nobody can shut it. I know you have a little strength, yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. This is a great little section. Because we read that in English, right? I know you have a little strength. And we go, that's a slam. Actually, it's a compliment. It's a compliment. Because if you read back at the beginning, Jesus decides to mention the name of an Old Testament patriarch. Anybody remember his name? You look back in the verse there. Who is it? David, right? Who's David? David's just a punk little shepherd kid. A, a, a little man of little strength with a slingshot. He's, he's, a, he's a singer. He's an artist, probably a temperamental one. He's just a boy of little strength who had the audacity to believe that just because he had little strength, it didn't matter because he was covered by a God who had limitless strength that pushed him out onto a battlefield with the audacity to believe that a kid of little strength could take down a giant as long as God was on his side. So God says to the church, yeah, I know you have little strength, but it's okay. Because you've been linked together with a God who has limitless strength. So let's just watch what happens when you walk through the door of opportunity that I've laid in front of you. Let's keep going. A living, vibrant church expects and anticipates opposition. Verse number nine. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So here's something that we all better get a clue on, okay? Wherever there is a church of Jesus, there will be opposition. I know that shocks some of you. It's like, I thought life would just be simple when I came to Christ. <laughs> really? Really? You actually know what Jesus stands for? I mean, you should expect some level of opposition. In fact, 1115, I didn't say this any other time, but you guys, you're like the tough crowd. If you don't encounter opposition as a believer, I would ask you this question. Are you sure you're a believer? Are you sure you actually open your mouth? Does anybody even know you're connected to Jesus? Because you should expect some level of opposition. So I'm down on vacation. And I'm reading newspapers. And even though I'm not close to home, I read about what happened in Charleston. I don't know those people. Apparently, they love Jesus and love their Bible. Because whoever that group of people was that was meeting together in that Bible study that night, they came for the specific purpose to pray for their community 
and study God's word, which means something to me. That's family. And my Bible says when my family hurts any part of it, that should hurt me. The Bible says we're supposed to weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn. So I found myself on vacation mourning with a, a group of family that I have never met before in Charleston. I pray that God spares us from that kind of pain. I mean, I've been doing this for 16 years. And I hope and pray we never have to live through what our family in Charleston has lived through. But I was also absolutely amazed as I watched the newspaper, as I opened my iPad and watched videos. I watched how something horrific started with hate and God somehow transformed into love. This blew me away. I watched the videos, I don't know if you saw them or not, of the family members of those who had been murdered by that young man. They had an opportunity to speak to him before he was arraigned for his hearing. And you can hear the voices of the family members saying, we forgive you. One lady said, young man, find Jesus. Find Jesus. He loves you and so do I. Where does that come from? It comes from the life of Joseph. Joseph speaking to his brothers who sold him into slavery. What you intended for evil, God's used for good, for the saving of many lives. Our God is the kind of God who can take something as horrific as murder and turn it into something beautiful like love. I have a very difficult question for you, sleep in service. What happened in your heart towards that young man? Did you want to hurt him? Jesus says, love your enemy. Can we all admit that that's hard? It's hard. I wrote this down in my notes. You don't judge how you love based on how you treat the people you like. You judge how you love based on how you respond to the people you hate. And I don't use the word hate lightly. Let me say that again. You don't judge how you love based on how you treat the people you like. That's easy. You judge how you love based on how you treat the people that you hate. Easy for me to love the family of the victims. Easy for me to love the first responders, the firefighters and the police who didn't run away from the scene but instead ran towards it. Easy for me to love them. Jesus calls me to love my enemy and that's truly how much I love him according to Scripture. Let's keep going. A living, vibrant church relies on God's protection in times of trial and tribulation. All right? Let's just face it. So far, first couple of chapters of Revelation, not much controversy, right? We're working our way through the seven churches. Some people would go like, yeah, I know what we're going to do. We're going to get to the end of that, and then we're going to like call the rest a wash. Yeah, no, absolutely not. 
Come for the rest of the summer. We're going to dive through it. But here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, there's this verse that says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Let the controversy begin. Okay? There are some people who believe, I will keep you from the hour of trial. They believe that means God will spare his people from a time coming in our future known as the Great Tribulation, a season of seven years that starts off pretty good, gets really, really bad. They believe that God will rapture his church, actually take his church out of the earth and not allow them to go through that time of Great Tribulation. Okay? There are other people who love Jesus with verses, who believe that this verse refers to the trials of this particular church, that it's just for the church in Philadelphia, and this is God's promise that no matter what came against them, that God would protect them. There are other people who love Jesus with verses in hand will say, this verse refers to the suffering of God's people throughout all of history and God's promise of protection. And the reality is this, people have debated this for centuries, okay? People have debated the idea of whether or not there is a rapture when God's church will be taken out of the earth. They've been debating this for centuries. People have been debating rapture and tribulation for 2,000 years. And the world has not been waiting for me to show up and tell you which is right and which is wrong. Okay? I grew up in a church where rapture and tribulation were preached all the time. It was taught as a great fear motivator. And it always seemed to happen this way. On a Sunday night, when it was 96 degrees in Manitoba, 100% humidity, we would go to church and sit in the front row because my dad was a deacon and my mom was the church treasurer. And the fish books would be in the front row. And we'd have a visiting evangelist show up in a suit with a tight collar. And he would sweat profusely. And he had a very large Bible, which he would shake at us. And ultimately, his message would build to a crescendo and he would say, Say to me as a seven or eight year old kid, you need to accept Jesus or you will be left behind. And if you are left behind, you're going to have to live through the great tribulation where you're going to have the opportunity to accept or refuse the mark of the beast on your forehead. And if you refuse it, you will have your head cut off. Wee! <laughs> yes! That's awesome. And then we would, they would show movies. Movies. Some of you remember A Thief in the Night, Distant Thunder, right? And there's a scene in the movie where the person walks outside and there's a lawnmower running all by itself. <laughs> and every day from that day forward, my dad would be doing lawn care. And he'd like leave the lawnmower running and walk away. And I'd walk outside and, no! <laughs> no! I want to go too! Right? Like, up! You guys, some of you know what I'm talking about, right? I got saved every Sunday night all summer long. It's just like, Jesus, please don't leave me behind, right? Some of you grew up in traditions and you're like, I've never heard that word ever. It's like, rap, rapper? Did you say there's a rapper at the end? Rapture, what? Here's an idea, okay? Would it be possible as a church that we could have an informed theological opinion without having to consult YouTube? Just saying, okay? Everybody wants to send me YouTube videos these days, right? I don't understand. Here's what I did. I'm not going to tell you what position to hold. In fact, I'm going to ask you again to come back to our agreement. I listed off in your outline 
all of the major verses about rapture and tribulation and where that comes from. And I would like you to do the unthinkable. I would like you to actually go home, open your Bible this week, read what the Bible has to say, and make up your mind for yourself. And realize there may be other people in the room who disagree with you. And that's okay. Okay? Let's keep going as we wrap up. A living church finds their identity fully in Jesus. Not in their position, not in their eschatology, which is a fancy word for what you believe about the end times, not on their little circle that excludes or includes people based on their preferences. A living church holds on to the promise, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Verse 12, the one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Here's my prayer for us as a church. If we actually believe that Jesus is coming soon, one of the things we will aspire to is to become pillars in our own community. That we will stand for what is right based on the foundation of the word of God. That we'll never be afraid to speak in a loving way to people who may even disagree with us. But that we stand firm on the name of God because that's the name that's been written on our heart. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the, uh, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. All those years ago, in that moment as a kid, Jesus wrote his name on my heart. And I've been trying to figure it out ever since. I'm so glad I belong to a church where it's okay to try and figure it out as you're going along. You know, we use this phrase around here, we're building this bike while we're riding it. It's kind of how it works. I love the movie Toy Story. You guys remember Toy Story? Right? Anybody else in the room cry in animated films? It's really embarrassing, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's like I hate it when that cartoon actually gets me, right? There's a moment in Toy Story when all of the toys are gathered together because they see something amazing. Andy has written his name on the bottom of the foot of Buzz Lightyear with permanent ink. And they're all like, Without being gross or weird, if you're here today as a follower of Jesus Christ, he's written his name on your heart in permanent blood. He went through that so he could write your, his name on your heart so that when you gave your heart to him, he could write your name down in the Lamb's book of life. So someday when you stand in front of him and God says, why should I let you into paradise? Jesus will come and say, actually, he's with me. Yeah. Actually, she's with me. You want to know what? See the name right there in the book and right on her heart. The words to this church end with the same appeal over and over and over again. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He keeps saying it. If you've got ears, listen. If you've got ears, listen. It's almost as if God knows that we have a hard time listening. That's why I keep saying it over and over and over again. Why do I have a hard time listening? Because I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear I'm dead. I think I'm doing okay. I'm fine, right? Why don't I want to hear this? You know, why, why would I not want to listen? 
sometimes pride. It's like, I don't want to have to listen to these guys. That's a 2,000-year-old lesson. I don't have anything to learn from a 2,000-year-old church. Maybe you do if you're dead. Maybe you need to hear the same hope. Maybe you need to realize again today that your name has been written down and that you bear that name and that it would be okay if somebody else actually knew that you bore that name because you are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power to save you and to save everybody else in Whatcom County. God keeps saying, listen, 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 listen. You know, um, this is deep theologically, so I hope you'll stick with me as we wrap this up. Dead people can't listen. Right? Those who are alive can hear what God is saying to the churches. Here's my question. What's he saying to you? I've been asking myself that question all week. What's he saying to me? About being a pillar. About establishing that pillar on the foundation of the word of God. About standing up for what Jesus believes is right. Not caring what anybody else thinks. You know what I love about following Jesus? It means I have no one to impress and nothing to prove. Because his acceptance is the only thing that matters to me. May we not be the church of Sardis. May we always be the church of Philadelphia. May the world know how much we love him by the way we love each other. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this morning and this challenge. May our lives be forever changed by it. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you as personal Savior today, don't have the assurance that their name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. I pray today, right now, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that their eternity is secure because of their relationship with you. So, Father, I pray that they would repent, that they would, in an act of faith, reach out to you and say, Jesus, save me. Lord, as we uh, swim in the deeper stuff here in the coming weeks, would you give us grace? Give us the desire to want to read it for ourselves, Lord, and open our hand so that we can hear whatever it is that you have to say to us. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Amen. Amen.